Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week, we will be talking about the similarities and differences between practical completion sectional completion and partial possession. Uh, Today's subject falls under PC3 and PC5 of the part three criteria. So let's start with practical completion and what it means. So practical completion in essence is a point in the process that makes the point at which a building project is certified as practically complete, uh, except for some minor defects that can be put right without disturbing the occupier and the contractor can hand over the building project to the client. So the practical completion certificate signifies that all the necessary construction work has been done without any obvious defects, but does not exclude the existence of latent defects, which in essence means that the contractor may be recalled back to the site to rectify uh, some minor defects which were not apparent at practical completion. So any defects that are apparent before practical completion, then these should be rectified before the certificate is issued. So practical completion can also be referred to as the point at which an architect or a contract administrator confirms that the contractor has achieved practical completion under the building contract. So it's essential an agreement is made from the outset on the liquidated damages to be paid by the contractor if the works aren't completed on time and then the architect or contract administrator can deem if that project has been practically complete. So what occurs once practical completion has been established? So the few key milestones that are achieved with practical completion is that the practical completion certificate is issued, the contractor gives up possession of the site to the client, the client becomes the building owner and becomes responsible for insurance, security and maintenance. A proportion of the retention monies are released. The period for the final adjustment of the contract sum is fixed. A liability for liquidated damages ends. It also marks the end of the liability for frost damage and the defects liability period begins. So those are the key uh, items that occur once practical completion has been established. So after that, Uh, what processes and documents should have been finalized and provided at practical completion. So at that stage, the contractor should have met and completed each of the statutory approvals required. The health and safety file should have been handed over to the client. The operations and maintenance manual should also be handed over to the client alongside a record of the final construction drawings. All testing and system data completed and accepted Uh, should also be handed over to the client together with the building logbook. Then the building owner will need to have a full understanding on how the building operates and user training should have been provided by the contractor. All the keys should have been handed over. Any used consumables should have been replaced and spares handed over to the client. Uh, There should be no patent defects and no outstanding issues. So that covers what um, consists of practical completion. 
Now let's look at sectional completion. So sectional completion is in essence a provision within the construction contract allowing for different completion dates to be set for different sections of the work. So this method is most common on larger projects where completing the works in sections allows the client to take possession of the completed parts while construction continues on the other parts. So for example, if you are constructing multiple buildings with various uses. So in addition to setting the completion dates for each section within the contract documents, the liquidated damages for each section will need to be clearly defined as well, alongside the amount of the retention monies to be released for each section. Then the same items as mentioned for practical completion will be valid um, for sectional completion uh, to be provided for the part of the works that has been completed, which in essence means that that section has achieved practical completion. So the key differences is that separate liquidated damages can be agreed for each section of the works and the date for completion for each section will need to be set and that the contract particulars of the relevant form is properly completed to allow for sectional completion. So the same items occur in that the defects liability period commences for that section, liability for liquidated damages ends for that section, and the client pays a proportion of the retention monies for that section to the contractor. And the same processes and documents as practical completion will need to be handed over to the client. Now, a few items to consider and to be wary of uh, for sectional completion is that there may be difficulties with logistics on site when different sections are in the possession from different parties. Uh, protecting the completed sections from ongoing works is also quite tricky to make sure that the new works that have been completed don't get damaged because of ongoing work uh, for the other sections. Uh, it should also be um, made provision for insurance at all times for all sections to make sure that all the works are covered. Also, health and safety measures will need to be put in place to deal with risks resulting from occupation of areas adjacent to or only accessible through ongoing construction works. And the appropriate security measures will also need to be in place uh, to segregate the different sections. So that covers sectional completion. Now let's look at partial possession. So under certain forms, this process allows the employer to take partial possession of some of the works before achieving practical completion of the whole of the works or a section of them. So this process can only be done with the contractor's consent. For example, if the client wishes to use a part of the works to be used for their business, for example, and there is a need for it to be delivered on a certain date, they may agree with the contractor that they will take possession of that area. Under such cases, the liquidated damages will need to be reevaluated and apportioned accordingly to exclude that element of the works. So the client will also need to notify the works insurers and receive confirmation that the insurance will not be biased. So once partial possession has been agreed between the client and the contractor, then the process followed is the same as practical and sectional completion in that the defects liability period commences for that section, liability for liquidated damages ends for that section, and the client pays a proportion of the retention monies for that section to the contractor.
and the same documents are handed over to the client and potential issues may arise uh, as mentioned under sectional completion. So one quick item to cover, I mentioned liquidated damages a few times and I just wanted to quickly outline what, what these are and what they consist of. So liquidated damages are in essence delay damages. So if the contractor fails to complete the works on the agreed completion date, then the client is entitled to a daily sum from the contractor. So this sum will have been agreed and outlined in the building contract uh, from the outset to cover the damages incurred to the client due to the contractor not being able to complete on time. So damages will be payable daily from the contractual completion date until either the actual completion date or the client takes over the works. So if the completion date is revised after liquidated damages have been deducted, then the client will need to repay the amount in the next interim payment. So the client will also be obliged to pay interest calculated at a rate provided in the contract between the date of payment of the damages and the date of the interim payment. So if the client takes over part of the works, the liquidated damages are reduced and they will need to be predetermined and set at the time the contract was drafted based on the agreed sum between the client and the contractor if the contractor fails to meet the completion date. So what do the three methods have in common and how do they differ? So all three processes require liquidated damages to be agreed between the client and the contractor in case the works are delayed or the client takes partial or full possession of the site before the agreed completion date. So when it comes to practical and sectional completion, both require the same processes and documents to be made available when the agreed completion date has been achieved, since through sectional completion, the section that reaches the completion stage is deemed to be practically complete and is handed over from the contractor to the client. Now, when it comes to sectional completion, uh, this has some familiarities with uh, practical completion in that the section of the works that has been complete is in essence practically complete. But of course, the key differences are that only part of the works has been practically complete and not the whole of the works. Now, when it comes to sectional completion and partial possession, sectional completion can be pre-planned and defined in the contract documents and leaves less to chance because the parties have to agree many of the practical consequences of that completion uh, in advance and the contractor will have an obligation to achieve the sectional completion dates. Whereas with partial possession, uh, this is most commonly agreed during the progress of the works and is more disruptive to the contractor who will be required to delay other aspects of the works to provide possession of a part of the works to the client. So the contractor does have the option to refuse partial possession if they deem it to interrupt the progress of the works too much and cause issues with insurance or pose any health and safety risks. So the client can pay the additional monies required to obtain partial possession, but it's often more expensive than agreeing sectional completion from the outset. So sectional completion is pre-planned and outlined in the contract documents, whereas partial possession is not. So to sum up what I discussed today, 
Practical completion is the point in the process that marks the completion of a building project and is certified as practically complete, except for minor defects that can be put right without disrupting the occupier and the contractor hands over the building project to the client. Now, sectional completion is similar to practical completion, but only for a section of the works. And the requirement for sectional completion will need to be stated in the contract documents alongside the completion dates and liquidated damages for each section. And partial possession with the consent of the contractor enables the employer to take possession of any part of the works before practical completion without it being pre-stated within the contract documents. But note that the contractor may refuse to give over possession of the part of the works required. As always, I like to provide you guys with a scenario to put what I just went through into context. So today's scenario uh, involves some works that the practice carried out a few years ago. And what happened is the facade of the shop fell off, injuring two passengers. So those two passengers uh, sued the uh, shop and they also sued us for um, negligence. So the when we did the works, the shop front was remodeled by uh, shop designers and work was carried out to the fascia supports to allow for a retractable awning uh, housed in a wooden box to be installed above the shop windows. Then a year after that, some building work was carried out to some flats above the shop where we acted as architect and contract administrator. So last year, the shop owner did experience some problems with the awning and believed it was damaged because of the works carried out to the flats. So the practice visited the site to investigate the complaint and reported that some problems appeared uh, with the awning, with the awning's re retracting mechanism. So a year passes and the shop front detached, injuring the two passengers that um, are suing the shop owner and us. So the shop owner is now accusing the practice for failing to see uh, or to appreciate the entire shop facade was in dangerous condition and failed to advise that urgent action was required. So your boss requires you to explore the liabilities and the course of action to be taken from the practice. So what you would do in response to that, you would write back to your manager to say that given we were not involved with the shopfront remodeling, that's not something we would have known to have been in a dangerous condition and we wouldn't have been able to identify it uh, given we didn't do any of that part of the works. And then you could also mention that when the structural engineer was involved to um, assisting carrying out the works to the flats. Um, if they suspected any problems with the structure or any dangerous activity or cracks, they probably would have captured it and advised against the works 
if there was any indication that the facade was not strong enough. So you can then outline to your manager that we can refer to the Party Wall Act uh, since the work was carried out with no complaints or disputes from the shop owner. It was probably assumed at the time that a notice was served to the shop owner notifying them of the works to be carried out to the flats above and to our knowledge there were no objections for the works to continue but we could check with the client whether a written consent was sent from the shop owner confirming their acceptance of the work but suspecting that if the client didn't raise it then the, sh the shop owner probably did provide consent, therefore we carried out the work to their knowledge and to their consent. Now, when it comes to the two pedestrians, um, you could mention to your manager that uh, we assume we are being sued under the Civil Liability Act for damage suffered recovering contribution from another person liable in respect of the same damage and since we didn't have a contractual relationship with the shop owner we can't rely on the net contribution clause within um, our appointment contract with our client so we will be liable to remedy the damages claimed from us by the pedestrians. You can then also highlight that surely during and after the works were complete on the shop front before we started the works on the flats, that the manufacturer should have provided the shop owner with the necessary documentation with regards to health and safety, cleaning and maintenance requirements for the facade and the awning. So it's also under their um, duties, the suppliers and the manufacturers and the installers whether the structure to determine whether the structure was robust enough to handle a remodeling of the facade and given the awning and shop front was under their duties and liabilities we are in no position to advise on their work but you can then continue to say that the mistake we made which might be placing us within the liable position is failure to invite the suppliers to the site visit we undertook when we investigated the problem with the awning in the first place. At that point, uh, the practice would be liable for professional negligence. But from our understanding, the installers um, are under the same uh, duty of care that we have uh, as professionals and that they would have applied the necessary precautions with regards to defective design, like we always do on all of our projects. So when we carried out the works for the flats above, the shop um, was made sure that all items were correctly specified and all defects were remedied and completed. And so that's why the practical completion certificate was issued. So since we were not aware and we didn't specify the facade and the awning mechanism to the shop front, we aren't liable for the failure of that system since we were not involved in its installation process. 
how could we have foreseen such a result without being involved in the construction process? And given we don't have a contractual agreement with the shop owner who made the who instructed the changes, we have not breached any contractual rules, nor did we have a liability to inspect the works under an appointment agreement with them. Therefore, you can say that you don't deem that the practice is liable for the facade falling off. So you can then recommend that the next steps would be to go through our notes or any photographs we may have taken on the day of the site visit to determine whether we did notice some damages to the facade and noted them, or if those damages defects can be seen from the photograph. If it is shown clearly that there was an apparent dangerous appearance to the facade, then we would be liable for not bringing it to the owner's attention. If no items are shown, though, from either notes or photographs, then we can't be blamed for a circumstance we couldn't have foreseen without being the architect of the job. So we should also uh, find any correspondence we have with the shopfront owner, since we may have mentioned the facade in any of the correspondence. Uh, Then you can recommend that after putting the information together, we should provide um, our PI insurance with an update uh, for them to advise us how we should proceed with this situation. And that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.